Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, Colorado disqualified former President Donald Trump from running on its ballot for president, arguing that he violated the 14th Amendment's prohibition on insurrectionists from holding public office. What do history and law say about this amendment and its purpose? What would so-called originalism mean as applied to the case? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Colorado was the first state to disqualify Donald Trump from the presidential ballot due to his violation of the 14th Amendment, the provisions on insurrection. The former president's appeal was heard at the Supreme Court recently, and right now, as we record, we are awaiting a ruling. But what exactly was the intent of this clause, Clause 3 of the 14th Amendment? What issues have arisen since Colorado cited it in its decision to remove Trump from the ballot? And broadly, how does and should history and the intent of the authors of a provision of the Constitution guide our interpretations and rulings into its legal principles? On today's show, we explore both the 14th Amendment and the historical approach or original intent to court decisions. Our panel is Jeremy Surrey, He's professor in the Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and his latest book, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. He hosts the podcast, This is Democracy. John Vile. He is Dean of the Honors College and Professor of Political Science at Middle Tennessee State University. He's the author of Essential Supreme Court Decisions, Summaries of Leading Cases in U.S. Constitutional Law, it's on its 17th edition, and the United States Constitution, One Document, Many Choices. And Frank Bowman, he's the Floyd R. Gibson, Missouri Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. He's the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump, and he writes the blog, Impeachable Offenses. Thank you all for joining us. Jeremy, I'll, I'll start with you. Since we are being directed by legal scholarship, you know, legal theory, that the intent of authors of amendments or of the Constitution should be privileged why was the 14th Amendment written and what was the intention explicitly of the clause that would bar uh, anyone who committed insurrection from holding public office? It, it's a great question, Doug, and it's an area where many of us, myself included, have written about this recently. The 14th Amendment began as the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and this was an act that passed overwhelmingly through Congress in the year after uh, Appomattox, in the year after the end of the Civil War. Uh, it was a bill that was designed to provide some basic protection for the lives of now freed individuals who had formerly been enslaved. The 13th Amendment, uh, which had passed and been ratified a few months earlier, ended slavery formally. And now there was a question of what kinds of rights would former slaves have in the United States. And the design of the Civil Rights Act was to provide equal protection under the law. It was to provide a basis for those who had been enslaved to live as equal citizens under the law, not in full equality economically or socially, 
but that they would have basic protections under the law. And they would have the, the ability, in the eyes of many Republicans in the North, to start their lives and build their communities. Part of that was also ensuring that the Confederate leaders, those who were responsible not only for enslaving individuals, but those who were responsible for fighting a war, were not in power to dispossess the newly freed slaves. And that's where Clause 3 of the 14th Amendment comes from. After the Civil Rights Act was passed and then vetoed by Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln as president, Congress overrode his veto, but they found that the president was not enforcing this. I, I've argued in my recent book that Andrew Johnson is our worst president because he's our first and really only president who consistently refused to enforce the law. We've recently had a president who claimed he wouldn't enforce the law, but under Trump's presidency, most laws were still enforced by the federal government. Under Andrew Johnson, he was explicitly not enforcing uh, acts of Congress. And so Congress went to create what they believed would be a self-enforcing mechanism, which would be the Constitution. Because as a constitutional amendment, that Civil Rights Act, which became the 14th Amendment, would be enforceable by the courts. It wouldn't rely upon the president of the United States. That's why it's written in language that doesn't rely, doesn't say the president is ordered to enforce this. It says it just will happen. The third clause of the 14th Amendment, which goes out of the Civil Rights Act, was explicitly put in there to prevent someone like Jefferson Davis from running for president again or other Confederate leaders for running for other major positions. Many of them were later pardoned, so they were able to run for office. But Jefferson Davis never did run for office. And if he had run for office, there's every reason to believe that the writers of the language of the 14th Amendment from the Republican Party would have claimed he was disqualified. I think there's really no debate about that. And uh, John Vile, uh, actually, Jeremy highlighted a number of these issues. Let me highlight one of those. And that is, is this amendment what was the phrase, you know, self-operating or, or, or self-executing, self-executing. Thank you very much. Ultimately, first of all, are constitutional amendments just generally self-executing or is there something unique about the 14th Amendment that makes it self-executing? And I, mean, I know President Trump's legal team has argued that it was not self-executing. What are your thoughts about that question? There are parts of the 14th Amendment where individual litigants can obviously bring suits regardless of whether there's a congressional law or not. So if you think you've been denied equal protection of the laws or been denied due process, obviously you don't need a congressional law to go to court to do that. There is, the 14th Amendment is not the only amendment that has an enforcement clause. It, in some ways, it reminds me of the necessary and proper clause in Article One, Section 8, you know, would Congress, probably Congress could legislate with or without it, but it makes it a little bit clearer that they have a specific responsibility to do it. And that that actually, you know, in this case, it's not, you can dispute whether Section 3 is self-executing or not. In other words, does it require a congressional law or can an individual state say, we believe this was an insurrectionist, and in this case, actually bring in testimony from an impeachment uh, trial of Trump to say, on that basis, we're going to exclude him from the ballot. And one of the things that came out during the, arg the oral arguments before the Supreme Court was, now, historically, states have had a fairly robust opportunity to decide who and who is not on their ballot, 
But several of the justices said, well, if this happens, are we in fact allowing Colorado and a few other states to determine who could win the presidency for all the states in general? Now, it turns out politics are so partisan right now that you're probably not going to have any red states trying to exclude Trump from the ballot and, you know, vice versa. But another concern, you know, part of it is even recognizably Congress has a power to execute this law, but is an exclusive power or is it a concurrent power? Do states also have a determination as to whether someone is or is not an insurrectionist? And uh, Frank Bowman, I want to bring you in, especially when thinking about the role that impeachment has played here, because one issue that certainly seemed to trouble the court, and that definitely has troubled me, is though we all saw the events of January 6th, is Donald Trump guilty of insurrection? I imagine, you know, the strongest case of this is that he was impeached for it. They had a trial, but he has himself said, you know, that he was exonerated, that he was acquitted. What role is impeachment playing in the big, broad question of did Donald Trump commit, you know, insurrection? Well, thanks. A couple of things. I want to just go back to amplify a little bit on something that John said before I answer your direct question, because one of the interesting things about this whole self-execution question with respect to Section 3 of the 14th is that although it is doubtless true that the other sections of the 14th Amendment have generally been deemed to be self-executing, although that wasn't necessarily self-evident at the time the thing was passed. I mean, that's simply, that's a development of precedent over the years where the courts have said, yes, individual litigants can come to us and and we will, you know, we will allow them to seek enforcement of the various provisions, other provisions of the, of the 14th. It is interesting to note that in the case of Section 3, Congress did shortly after um, the enactment of the 14th Amendment, Congress did in fact create an enforcement mechanism. There was a statute in place, I think it was enacted around 1878, something like that, um, and remained in effect until around 1940 something, when for reasons that I don't know, it was repealed. Um, So if one is, you know, in a Trumpian mode or is trying to defend him in this case, one can say, well, now, this is actually an instance where uh, Congress apparently felt it incumbent upon itself to pass an enforcement mechanism. In other words, there was a statute that said, "Okay, if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to charge somebody with insurrection or rebellion and disqualify them in the fourteenth, here's what you do: you 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 hear the, hear the procedures you engage in." And we don't have that anymore, and it's it's the repeal of that statute in 1940-something that that creates a good part of the litigation difficulty in this case. Now, one could say, and I'm going a little bit far afield here, but one could argue that, in fact, there remains a kind of an enforcement mechanism in the federal criminal code um, because inciting insurrection is, in fact, a criminal violation. Notably, um, Jack Smith, for example, the special counsel, did not charge Trump with that statute. If he had, uh, and we could talk if we want about why he might not have done that, but had he done that, and if the case were to go to a jury and Trump were to be convicted, the 
the self-execution problem would presumably evaporate. Now, I suppose Trump could technically argue, well, the, the criminal statute doesn't exactly map map on the criminal statute or the, the constitutional provision, da 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 da. But um, that that's the that's the issue there. So it's the, the the what Congress has done since the enactment of the Fourteenth Amendment, ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment, it complicates the self-execution question in a way that it might not be true otherwise. To get to your question, with respect to impeachment, um, I mean, certainly, if one were found to have incited an insurrection, uh, would that be an impeachable offense? Sure, it would. I think it's frivolous yes. to deny that. Now, it's also true that the, the impeachment, the article of impeachment against Trump in you know, that, that that was brought forward in 2021, again, may not exactly map on to the constitutional standard. Um, and Trump can, of course, say, well, yeah, I was acquitted. But of course, impeachment is this weird thing where acquittal doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that that more of your jurors voted to acquit you than, than the reverse. In fact, in this case, 57 senators said he was guilty of conduct which certainly maps pretty well onto the 14th Amendment, Section 3. But under the peculiarities of the supermajority requirement of impeachment, that wasn't enough to get him out. Um, what does all that mean? I mean, I think one thing that is absolutely clear is that the argument made by President Trump's counsel in, 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 in the Colorado litigation that well, because he's he was acquitted um, by the Senate, that therefore you can't you know you, you you can't bring any sort of disqualification action against him. Or over in the January sixth prosecution in the District of Columbia, you can't even you can't prosecute me criminally because I was acquitted in the in the impeachment proceeding. Neither of those things uh, is true, and I think the Supreme Court will give them short shrift. So I've answered more questions than you asked, but there. <laughs> Once again, you listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. Uh, we are discussing the 14th Amendment, the case to remove Trump from the ballot in Colorado and in other states. And our panel today is Jeremy Suri of the University of Texas, John Vile of Middle uh, Tennessee State University, and Frank Bowman uh, from the University of Missouri. And Jeremy, since Impeachment is playing such such a significant role, and our understanding of impeachment, our understanding of you know what acquittal of impeachment means. There is this historical precedent, of course, of Andrew Johnson being impeached and surviving the removal by a single vote. So during this period, what was that relationship between Johnson, you know, being impeached and the anger that Congress obviously had towards him, and this perception about the execution of the Fourteenth Amendment? And then broadly, the way we view impeachment and guilt. Great question. And it is our first impeachment, and it, it was our only case for a long time until Bill Clinton's presidency. And then, of course, with Donald Trump's presidency, now we have a, a, a four cases historically, uh, which is extraordinary to think that when I was in graduate school, we had zero. We had one case, and now we've gone to four. Um, so uh, impeachment was never designed to be a criminal process. It's not a criminal trial, and it has no bearing on what happens uh, in a criminal trial. Uh, and that's quite clear. I, I, I think it's a frivolous argument actually for anyone to make that it's double jeopardy if you've been put up for impeachment and then um, brought up on a, a criminal trial of one kind or another. They're separate things. And by the way, 
the Trump defense was exactly that. Uh, in the second impeachment, the Trump defense was that uh, if he had broken the law, he should be prosecuted in a court of law and not not impeached. And Mitch McConnell's reason for not voting for impeachment was just that, that this should go to a court of law. So you can't have it both ways, it seems to me. This, this is a, an argument made in bad faith by the, by the Trump people. Now, Andrew Johnson's impeachment really had nothing to do with the 14th Amendment. Andrew Johnson's impeachment was about his non-enforcement of the law, uh, going back to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, his vetoing of the Freedmen's Act, and various other things, um, and his refusal to enforce what a overwhelming congressional majority had required and demanded. Uh, Congress went so far as to try to circumvent um, the president's control over the military, trying to work directly with Ulysses Grant, who was uh, the general-in-chief at the time. The precipitating factor for Andrew Johnson's impeachment was his firing of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And uh, Stanton and his firing of Stanton uh, was because Stanton, he believed, was following what Congress asked the War Department to do. Uh, Congress had passed legislation before then of dubious constitutionality, which had prohibited the president from firing a cabinet officer without consulting Congress first. Johnson refused to recognize the constitutionality of that legislation, and it was constitutionally questionable, and went ahead and tried to fire Stanton. Stanton refused to leave, actually uh, slept in the War Department, <laughs> and that's what brought us to this, to this moment. Uh, Congress had the votes to impeach in the House, and then when it went to the Senate, Andrew Johnson fell one vote short, and as I document in my book, and as other historians have documented, he actually bribed a senator from Kansas to make sure that there wasn't the two-thirds vote to uh, throw him out. Um, so, so that impeachment was over politics, which is actually what the founders expected. They expected impeachment to be a political process, and it would be a process where someone who was deemed to be beyond the pale either because of misconduct, crimes and misdemeanors as the Constitution writes, or even just gross incompetence, uh, that, that that person would be impeached and then possibly thrown out of office. As I argue in my book, this is a process that's never really worked well. Um, and when it's politicized, it's even more un unworkable. The 14th Amendment issue, I think, is more an election issue. It's not an impeachment issue. And John Bell, you want to respond as well? Well, I know Jeremy knows this, but just to, to add a little bit, we do have some other impeachments, but for presidential impeachment, I mean, we start with the, with with courts and we've never had a Supreme Court. We've had Supreme Court justice impeached, but never convicted. Right. But we have had, I think it's a total of like 18. Frank will know this better than I do, but, you know, fair number of impeachments throughout American history. But you're right when it comes to presidency. One of the fascinating things I find about this case is and some of these arguments have been around. I have a friend, Seth Tillman, sort of a friend of a friend, uh, who for 15 years ago began writing arguments that I thought and still think were excessively, I don't know how to put it, uh, maybe cut the baloney a little too thin or <laughs> what the analogy. But, you know, one of the arguments that Trump's people is make or Trump's people have made is that he is not an officer of the United States. And in my judgment, this is an over-technical interpretation of what an officer of the United States is. And in fact, there's a, a very good article that's just been posted by two professors from uh, Brigham Young University who have said it is not, in fact, a technical term as they're trying to interpret it, 
uh, one place it can mean this and another place it can mean something else. But the, the other argument um, that, that's interesting, and this is even this is even more bizarre in my judgment, that they're arguing that the that Trump never took an oath to uh, to support the Constitution. He took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend, and therefore he would not qualify under this. I mean, it 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 has almost gotten into an Alice in Wonderland kind of scenario, I think, for some of these arguments. And Jeremy, you have some thoughts. Yeah, if I could just say these these seem prima facie silly arguments. I mean, in yes. any of our classes. If a yes. student made this argument, we would say that it, it doesn't hold water. Go back and redo your work. Yes, yes. One of the uh, strong points of the appellate court decision, they make such a strong historical case by saying the president is charged to enforce the law. It seems incredibly paradoxical that the person charged to enforce the law would then be given carte blanche to violate the law. That, that doesn't pass the smell test of any kind of logical reasoning, aside from all the textual arguments that can be made. What I can say is actually similar to these arguments that a president is completely immune from criminal prosecution unless he's not only impeached, but also con convicted and removed from office. John, I want to turn to you to ask first, but, you know, sort of for the entire panel here, then we've established that impeachment is not the same as a legal proceeding and it's not meant to be, et cetera. But I think there's still this big sort of legal and political argument then on what grounds are we asserting that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection? If he'd been convicted in the court of law, that's an easy case. Perhaps if he had been removed from office, he would be ineligible because that's part of the terms of that. But well, not um, necessarily. Okay. And well, Frank, uh, Frank confirmed <laughs> this, but Congress makes an independent decision. Oh, okay. If you're impeached as to, if convicted as to whether you can seek further office. Okay. But basically you're right. That wasn't always true, but sometime around the 1930s, the Senate decided that they would split the votes. Okay. But ultimately, and this is something that's troubled me as a the non-legal scholar, then who makes that determination? Because certainly there have been these machinations at some states that Texas might decide that if Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection under a decision made by Colorado, Texas is just going to declare that Joe Biden is guilty of insurrection because he's not enforcing the border or, or whatever the case may be. So in those circumstances, who makes that determination that, you know, even if clause three, it's recognized under the 14th amendment that anybody guilty of insurrection is barred from the ballot, but who makes the determination whether you're guilty from insurrection? Well, I, I mean, that's, that I think is the biggest problem, and you know, to give the Supreme court it's due. Um, I think that's the thing that troubles them the most. You know, there's a couple levels of procedural problem. The first one is a kind of, you know, what processes do and in what venue to make a determination that someone has, has committed disqualifying insurrection or rebellion. Colorado's basically said, hey, we think that this is self-executing in the sense that, you know, ordinary state laws can operate even on a federal official. As it turns out in Colorado, somewhat unusually, by the way, we've actually got a state statute that permits yes. challenges of this kind to be brought at a fairly early point. And therefore, we have a legal and procedural vehicle um, to take a case like this, to put it in front of an actual judge who then holds a proceeding of the ordinary kind, a trial in which evidence is adduced 
And at the result, at the end of which, the judge makes a decision in the ordinary way. And if this were a case where the official at issue was, say, running for just Congress or maybe the Senate, I think from the Supreme Court's point of view, this might be quite a different thing. I think the thing they're wrestling with is precisely the problem that if now we have Colorado who's found one thing, um, albeit under a federal constitutional standard, what is the effect of that? Um, is that, for example, could you use a legal doctrine of, you know, of, of, of offensive collateral estoppel to try to prevent um, Trump from contesting, uh, you know, disqualification proceedings in other states? Um, would the reverse be true if the case had come out the other way? Um, and in any event, do we want, you know, the, the courts of any state, regardless of how well-conducted and how well-meaning and intellectually honest they are, do we want the courts of one state to make to determine the eligibility for national office uh, of somebody like a president? And uh, really there are only you know, a couple of presidents and vice presidents, basically. Um, do we want that? And the trouble is there's no really e there's no easy out for them here. And among the, the, the legal issues that are specifically presented, there's no place clearly where they get to, to say, well, we just think this would be a really bad idea. Um, so if in fact they think this would be a really bad idea and create immense confusion and, and trouble and so forth and so on, what they're going to have to do is find some specious <laughs> excuse to throw this case out basically because they think it's a really bad idea for some for one state to make this decision. It, it's almost as much a public policy argument, which, you know, typically you don't expect judges to engage in that, you know, it's constitutional interpretation. But I, I do think, and I think I made this point earlier, but we live in such a divisive time that I think it really is reasonable to say that Texas, if if Colorado excludes Trump from the ballot, Texas is going to try to exclude Biden. And it wouldn't be correct any more than having an impeachment trial of Mayorkas. I mean, to me, that's just nonsense. He's somebody carrying out, as far as I can understand it, what his superior has told him to do. But that hasn't stopped the impeachment from happening. Don't think he'll be convicted, of course. But Now, what you're saying here is that the court has a political motivation for a certain outcome and we're really kind of fascinated then with how they're going to get to this outcome. Jeremy, this is not the first time the court has done this, right? I, I think if there's numerous examples historically. FDR comes to mind immediately exactly. where they have these, the court knows what they want to do. Ex parte Quirin, you know, the discovery of the Nazi, you know, saboteurs as an example, or Korematsu, obviously, with, with Japanese internment. And then they have to go back and figure it out. And I know from a jurisprudence perspective, it tends to be some of the worst jurisprudence. First of all, how common is that with the courts that, hey, they have an outcome that's been predetermined, so they they give this outcome, and then they kind of try to figure it out. And how much does that challenge the legitimacy of the court? Doug, you brilliantly asked the question that I think is at the center of debate among historians and legal scholars, uh, which is to what extent are the opinions of the Supreme Court and other judges, are they about the law or are they about politics? And of course, it's always both. I hear the adage of Karl von Clausewitz 
about war is true for law as well. It's the extension of politics by other means. Uh, and the, the question is, how political are you willing to be? And what kinds of cover do you create uh, to make your political judgments consistent with legal principle? And I think the court has always done this. You gave a number of examples that I think are very important. I would simply put it this way. Um, the court's authority is based on its doing things that people recognize around the country as legitimate. It's very hard for it to do something that's seen as illegitimate because as Andrew Jackson said, and he was not the only president to say this, the court doesn't have an army to enforce its uh, rulings. And so when they ruled on behalf of Native American communities, Andrew Jackson flagrantly disregarded that and could disregard it because the consensus of the country was there. The same is true today. So I think the court is going to try to find a way to keep Trump on the ballot. But I will say the insurrection question, I think, has a pretty easy answer. It's up to district courts to try the facts. And if they see evidence of insurrection, they see evidence of insurrection. I think it's a red herring that Texas would claim that Joe Biden committed insurrection. Even a Republican district court needs to have some evidentiary basis for that. You could imagine a president who was part of a protest movement at some point, maybe being subjected to this. But I think the district court played its role appropriately in Colorado in assessing the facts and assessing that there was an insurrection. And it is not the role of the Supreme Court to try the facts, but to try the law. So they are not going to, I don't think, comment on the insurrection issue. They're going to come up with some legal standard that they will make up a species standard, as a species standard, as Frank said, that will give them cover for keeping Trump on the ballot because they think that's the best position for the court to be in, especially when they are likely to deny his immunity. Frank Bowman. I want to disagree in the slightest way with what Jeremy said, which is in, in the determination of whether or not Donald Trump committed insurrection, it's not, I think, true to say that the, it, that's entirely a question for the district court, because there is both a question of fact and a question of law. The question of law is, what is an insurrection? Um, and we don't really know that very well. I mean, there's not there's not a very well-established definition in the law of what an insurrection is. It is certainly the case that a district court in trying such a matter is supposed to make findings of fact, but that district court also then has to say, given these facts, I find that they meet a particular legal standard. One, And in fact, one of the, if this case were postured a little differently, one of the things that the Supreme Court we would expect to do would be to say, all right, we essentially accept the factual findings of the district court, but we don't think that those factual findings amount to insurrection under the Constitution, because that's our job. Our job is to decide what the word insurrection means in the constitutional context, and they might very well be able to say, okay, we defer to the factual findings of the district court, that's what district courts do, but we don't think that the district court applied the correct constitutional definition of insurrection. But I do agree that I think in this case, they're unlikely to do that. I think they're going to duck that. John Dial. If they were to decide that this provision of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, that would not prevent future Congresses from deciding, from giving us a definition, as apparently they've done before, you know, up to the 1940s of maybe what an insurrection is. 
so that they wouldn't it wouldn't be completely political you wouldn't be saying you can never if state can never keep somebody from the ballot they would be saying it's they can only do it using guidelines that congress has established frank bowman interesting technical question about whether or not congress can define a constitutional term they can define it if they want and they want to at the end of the day at least in our current dispensation the court is at liberty to say no 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 for constitutional purposes it actually means a b and c it doesn't mean c d and e right. as congress said but well i mean the due process issue is partly partly in play here the district court says they gave due process to trump trump says he didn't have due process and due process is i mean as much as any term mm -hmm. defined judicially yeah, if, if I could just come in as a historian on this, and I, I just want to remind us, uh, and, and I, I defer to the, the two smarter people who know legal issues better than I do are lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a historian, right? But the writing of the text explicitly says that the third, the disqualification comes in if you engage in insurrection or rebellion or gave aid and comfort to yes. the enemies thereof, right? Now, more than a thousand people have been convicted of interfering with the process of a peaceful transfer of power. And Trump has, in his own words, even in the last few weeks, uh, given aid and comfort. He's called them hostages. He said they should be released. He said they're heroes. Um, so I, I, I understand that there's not a firm legal standard here, but there is the common sense smell test, which is to say that he has given aid and comfort to those who tried to interrupt a peaceful transfer of power, which by any definition would be in a, a form of insurrection, it seems to me, whether there's precedent for that or not. And so it seems to me it's reasonable that a district court would find that his behavior was insurrection and therefore invoked this, this clause. Um, I, I'm not sure the Supreme Court is better situated to litigate that. I think that what they should be focusing on is and what they are and what we're talking about is, is under what conditions should this third section of the 14th Amendment be applicable? I've made a couple of technical yeah, John, arguments, most of which I don't agree with, but just to say that they've been there. But Michael McConnell, a former judge and uh, law professor, has made an argument which I find somewhat persuasive that what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection, it was a riot. And that might seem to be a fine distinction, but I think there's something, you know, was it plotted six months in advance? Was the intention to overthrow the government? There was a clear intention to keep someone in power, but not necessarily to, you know, it wasn't quite the Confederate States of America. So just throwing that in there, I'm not sure I'm persuaded by it or not, but I think it's, I think it would be something that the court might have to decide. Mm. I think Michael's just, McConnell's just, by focusing on the events of January the 16th, you know, he misses the point. Well, yeah. maybe. The insurrection didn't, wasn't some people breaking into the to, to Congress, although that was the culmination. Right. Mm -hmm. Insurrection was the plan that, you know, that that was established through the January 6th committee, established during the impeachment, that, you know, that uh, that Jack Smith is going to prosecute, uh, that Fannie Willis, if she's ever allowed to, will be prosecuted <laughs> down, in, down in Georgia, um, that there was a plot, a plan, a conspiracy, a scheme um, to keep a man in power who lost an election. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the technical question with respect to insurrection might turn on the question of whether violence was involved, because normally that's sort of what we, we would think of. And then the question is, was violence planned? Was it 
you know, was it was it foreseeable? Um, so you could get in, you, you can end up, you know, slicing the salami very, very narrowly there to determine whether or not, in fact, there's an insurrection. But to the extent that McConnell is trying to say, oh, it's, it's a riot because that's what happened on the 6th, he's smarter than that. <laughs> um, and right. I think that's a very bad argument. And I think the convictions of many of the participants are a way to think about is this what constitutes insurrection? The fact that the courts have actually spoken in terms of of so many people being convicted and you know serving prison terms certainly plays that role. When we come back, what exactly is originalist jurisprudence in court decisions? How much should judges be guided by the authors of the Constitution and its amendments? Stay with us. This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. History is at the center of the originalist approach to law. So why aren't historians playing a larger role in court rulings? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Our panel today is Jeremy Surrey. He's a professor in the Department of History and uh, the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. John Vile, Dean of the Honors College and Professor of Political Science at Middle Tennessee State University, and Frank Bowman, Floyd R. Gibson of Missouri Endowed Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri's School of Law. So, John, actually, I'm going to ask you this question first. What do we mean by original intent? What ultimately do legal scholars mean by original intent? And how much should this be guided by historians' accounts and historians' interpretations as to the motivations behind passing amendments like the 14th Amendment? I think there's sort of a naive view of original intent, which is if, you know, you find this in a lot of documents, if we just knew privately what Thomas Jefferson or James Madison were thinking, we can find a letter somewhere that says this is insurrection, it would somehow bind us. I think that's sort of the naive view. I think the more sophisticated view is what was the, I guess the term usually uses, what was the original public meaning of a phrase in the Constitution at the time that it was adopted? Uh, now, that being said, often we find, you, you know, we've had political parties from the beginning. You, you don't get halfway through the first Washington administration before you have to decide what the necessary proper clause is and and many others. So often it's a very elusive quest. Sometimes it is tied to what's referred to as textualism. And that's, you know, some of these some of these arguments that I brought in are very, you know, what is an officer of the United States? Is an oath, you know, oath to support the Constitution the same as an oath to protect and defend the Constitution? Uh, but basically, it's an attempt to find out what did it mean when it was adopted. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who adopted it or approved it felt the same way. And uh, Frank, same question to you, uh, because I know this has been out there 
I first remember hearing a lot about original intent in the 80s seemed to be, you know, with the tie to the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. So it's been out there for now, better part of what, four decades or so. What does it currently mean? And has this concept of original intent changed over the course of the last, say, four decades? Well, I mean, it's an immensely complicated question to which there is no even remotely agreed upon answer. I think you start with this basic notion. We are not unique, but we are different than some countries in that we operate under a written constitution, which we have decided is the fundamental law. Uh, and that means that we have to look at that text and we have to decide what it means. That If law is not to be completely indeterminate, we have to decide what the text of the foundational law means. Sometimes that's very clear. Um, you know, you can't be a congressman unless you're more than 25 years old and you're a resident of the state. Okay, easy stuff. Sometimes it's not clear what it means. And therefore the question becomes, how do we decide? Um, and one school of thought is that the way to decide what the constitutional text means is to decide what the founding generation, broadly speaking, understood certain words or phrases to mean. And of course, that has an intuitive attraction. Uh, you know, presumably they they put you know, drafters of constitutions, drafters of statutes, choose the words they choose because they want to permit some things and prohibit other things, or at least and make maybe a third class of things possible. So it's we just naturally think that we, we need to figure out what the the folks meant at the outset. The difficulty with that intuition is that, first of all, it's often not clear what they meant. And in fact, the Constitution is the result of a long negotiation between a group of very smart people who were nonetheless practical politicians. And in the course of that negotiation, sometimes they put language in the Constitution because they wanted it to mean particular things, but other times they chose language because of strategic ambiguity because they didn't want to actually decide stuff. They wanted to leave it open-ended. And other and the other thing is that they understood constitution, cons, the constitution and constitutionalism in perhaps a different way than sort of constitutional fundamentalists do. In the sense that they understood a constitution, I think, even though they were writing a constitution, they thought a written constitution was important. These guys were Englishmen. They were they were Britons. And they were coming from a from a constitutional um, milieu, a constitutional tradition of unwritten law. And they understood that even if they started with a, a, a text, that the real constitution, the constitution that was going to actually govern the country over time, was going to be not just those words, but, but the, the incrustation of understandings of, of interpretation created by statutes, created by courts, um, over decades. That's what the Constitution was going to be, I think, in their minds. And in fact, that's what the Constitution is. Most of the time when people start talk loosely about the Constitution, they're usually not actually talking about the text of the Constitution. They're talking about some subtle understanding about what some portion of the Constitution has come to mean as a result of decades or, or a couple centuries of, of practice. So I guess I've gone on too long, but what I would say is that... Uh, I'm personally not an originalist in the 
sort of, uh, I'm not a member of the originalist club. Um, I don't, um, but I use originalist arguments because I think they, I think they're useful. I think they matter if they, you, you, because there have to be some outer limits on what the constitution means. Understanding what the framers meant in the first instance is, is at, at the very least a terribly, terribly important place to start. But once you understand that, you have to add on 235 years of practice and statutes and judicial interpretation that have built the real constitution. Mm. Here into the epistle. <laughs> and Jeremy, I want to bring you in, first of all, as the historian talking about original intent, obviously you play a pretty significant role, but I I think of this from a historiographical perspective. First of all, you know, original intent, framer intent, sometimes I I ask the question, well, you know, which frame are you talking about? You know, which author are you talking about? Because we make this presumption that historical motivations are somehow this kind of positivist, you know, absolute that you can understand it as opposed to something that is intensely debated, not it may have been debated at the time, but definitely debated among historians from that perspective. Although there are, there is the development of consensuses. I guess the first question is, can we actually determine originalist intent? And the second question is, is the court using history in the same way historians view these issues? Or is it more of a tool to get to the decision they want to get to? So uh, let me start with the second question, because I want to be provocative on this. These are great questions. And I think John and Frank said so many smart things. I'm, I'm learning a lot listening to all of this. Uh, my friend and colleague, Jill Lepore, uh, has a very good phrase for talking about a way of talking about originalism in the, in the Supreme Court and the way they use history. And I think she's right. It's a little glib, but I think she's right. And I wish I had said this before she did. So I could quote myself. Um, she said that uh, the Supreme Court has as much business telling you about the history of the founders as your dentist does. <laughs> Because the members of the court are smart people. I think they're universally smart. Let, let's, let's be clear about this, right? Uh, Justice Scalia, I might disagree with him. He's an incredibly smart, learned person. Uh, Justice Kagan, some might disagree with her, but she's an incredibly smart, learned person. So this is not to impugn the intelligence of these individuals or their hard work, but they are not trained as historians. And uh, so her point is, and my point is, that just as my dentist might read some history and have some strong historical opinions, my dentist is not a historian, nor are those who have gone to fancy law schools and even been law school deans, are they necessarily historians? And there's, so there's something silly about this. And what is um, shocking to historians when we read Supreme Court opinions is that they quite often, and this is true on both sides, by the way, they quite often make historical judgments that are not only questionable to historians, but are very poorly founded in historical fact and historical research. Oftentimes, for example, drawing on historical scholarship that is old and outdated that they happen to read when they were undergrads or something of that sort. And so there's a real problem in the methodology of applying originalism, even if one believes it. Let's say you take on Scalia's position on this, uh, then you would expect the court to do more serious research into the complexities about how these individuals spoke, thought, acted in their time, and they don't do that. That's not their métier. Uh, they don't choose their uh, clerks for, as being historians who can do that work for them. So there's a real problem here. Uh, it is like your dentist spouting off on history in one way or another, and and I think that's 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 a problem uh, with with originalism. Now to your 
to your first question, can can we ever get to an originalist uh, element? What what historians would say is very similar, I think, to what Frank and John have both said very intelligently, which is that, uh, and as you put it, Doug, as a constructivist that you are, right, there's no one meaning out there. There's no eternal meaning in the First Amendment. Free speech meant something different in the 18th century than it means today. Uh, the right to bear arms meant something different in the 18th century than it means uh, today. There's no way that the founders could have conceived of a world with social media and the way in which social media changes the way we communicate with one another. What a historian would say is there's not a stable universal originalism, but there are some guardrails. We can know what we didn't th what they didn't think about. We could know what they were against. So we can say it is a fair originalist position that we should take account of in all jurisprudence that the founders were universally opposed to a king maybe with Hamilton is the only exception at times on this, right? That they created a system that was not supposed to have a monarch, for example, and that would be relevant to how we think about immunity for a president or not. That they also believed that uh, questions of appropriation and taxation should go through the part of the government that is most representative and closest to the people, which is why things uh, appropriation start with the house. And we could make a list of things of that point, which are very general, general guidelines but i think beyond that when you're dealing with a question like abortion when you're dealing with a question like gun ownership uh the context has changed so considerably and the founders themselves were in such a disagreement that it is very hard to come up with any originalist interpretation that is anything more than the arbitrary judgment of someone and that's where historians get very skeptical um and that's why historians don't say you know the founders thought about guns this way <laughs> Right. We can say they didn't think about guns a certain way, but there's no way of saying they thought about it one particular way. And, and so that's the that's the challenge. But I think when you talk to most originalists, they, they see this problem. Uh, they just seem to try to elide it in the way they then go about their writing. No, absolutely. So historically, I mean, from a jurisprudence perspective, I guess the John, I'll, I'll direct this question initially towards you. Then when you think about original intent, it's definitely a historical approach that you can take to these understandings and in, in how these things have developed over time. In fact, that's literally what stare decisis is, is yeah. tracking what has this meant over the years. Is originalism trying to almost overturn stare decisis by saying that previous courts, if they weren't originalist, got it wrong and we need to reestablish it back to an original the, the, intent? The Dobbs decision would be an example of that. I mean, you have mm -hmm. one historical interpretation that says this was largely a matter left to the states and um justice alito says hey you got it you got the history wrong and i don't know that he's a bit any better historian than justice blackman was but he certainly certainly has done that you know one of the things and i mean this is implicit in our conversation but we're not just talking about one set of founders particularly when we deal with the 14th amendment we, we've had you know refoundings certainly in the Civil War and possibly the New Deal. And that, that goes to Frank's you know, observation that not everything is incorporated directly in the Constitution. But we certainly think about federal state relations much differently after Franklin Roosevelt than we did before. So you know, even if you get the original intent of James Madison, that may not be the original intent of John Bingham and you know, the 14th Amendment or you know, even some of the subsequent amendments that have followed. 14th Amendment, I think pretty clearly when it said equal protection of the laws, 
the primary group they were thinking of, I believe, pretty conclusively, were the former slaves. It's now been applied to women, and I think most of us say that that's right, some degree to LGBT uh, issues and 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 others. Um, so it's it's not just you can't just look at one historical time period. So ultimately, then, how concerned should the Supreme Court be that these decisions would be made this these federal decisions made by the states? I guess I've avoided using the term federalism, but is this at, at its core really a federalist question, which? perhaps pretends whether it's an act of Congress or maybe we should actually create a presidential commission, a commission that determines like presidential eligibility, which by the way, a lot of countries have. Exactly. Though it can be controversial. Ultimately, is is this really a federalism question? Jeremy, I'll, I'll ask you first. So I, I would prefer, my policy preference would be, and this is the comparativist in me, would prefer to do what other countries do, where we have a national voter administration system, an agency set up to administer the vote through the country and set up universal standards for voting and prevent states like my own in Texas from making it difficult for some people to vote, right? That we would actually have national standards. I'd like to see us have national standards for voting in the way we have national standards, for example, for uh, airplane safety and things of that, of that sort. It seems to me voting is at least as important as airplane safety. Um, but we don't have that system. We have a federal system. We have a, we have a very messy election system, and it was set up intentionally that way, and it has been that way and gotten messier and messier. And again, many historians, myself included, have written about this. Under that system, the states have a lot of power to determine who runs and who doesn't. And this happens all the time. After Ross Perot ran in 1992, many states made it harder for a third-party candidate to get on the ballot. And Democrats and Republicans have not jumped up and down and sued in the Supreme Court because they like that. It seems to me perfectly legitimate under our current system, not my preferred system, Doug, but under our current system, that states have the leeway to determine with fair constitutional guidelines who has committed insurrection and who hasn't, just as they determine who has the requisite number of signatures, who has uh, committed a felony and who has not in their states. So it, it, it fits with our system, from my reading of it, for Colorado to do what it's doing. If we don't like that outcome, then we should create a national system. We shouldn't create a hodgepodge of Supreme Court rulings that allow some things and not other things. I may add, Aiko Rita Moore, who's from Yale, has made it precisely this argument that we have a federal system, it's messy, uh, but maybe we should, you know, that's what we have right now. One of the fascinating things about the Constitution, and maybe there'll be some argument here, but there's not a positive provision for voting in the Constitution. There are provisions against discrimination on the basis of race or sex or age uh, over, uh, over 18. But, you know, some people believe maybe if we go with Jeremy's suggestion that we have a uniform set, maybe part of this should be an amendment that says there is a positive right to vote. The 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 impetus should be, or the, the, the weight of the argument should be against someone who's trying to prevent someone, you know, over 18 from voting. I, I, I agree 100%. That was a, what I closed my prior book on, and others have argued for this. We should have the same language for voting we have for speech. Mm. No one should make a law to limit your voting. Our panel today has been Jeremy Surrey. 
He's professor in the Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. His latest book is Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. And he also hosts the podcast, This is Democracy. John Vile. He's Dean of the Honors College and Professor of Political Science at Middle Tennessee State University. He's the author of Essential Supreme Court Decisions, Summaries of Leading Cases in U.S. Constitutional Law, that's on its 17th edition, and the United States Constitution, One Document, Many Choices. And Frank Bowman is Floyd R. Gibson, Missouri uh, Endowed Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri School of Law. He's the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump, and he also writes the blog Impeachable Offenses. Thank you all very, very much for joining us, for sharing your expertise, and uh, we're all grateful for all you know all the insights you've been able to provide. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producer is Ankina Agassian. Mejike Chechi is our assistant producer. Sed Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at scholarcircle.org. And our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at Scholar Circle or me at Armudian and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian.